In those days, you could take the, the bottom off of a street lamp and plug in the, to the electrical current and have uh, people would have block parties that way. So we did it with um, a portable monitor <laughs> and, a and the black and white, you know, porta pack and played it. And we had discussions like this was this. You're making this to make a difference. It wasn't just art. It was about social change. This is no such thing a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Of all the origin stories I've ever heard for nonprofits, this might be my favorite ever. EVC, the Educational Video Center, is a nonprofit founded and based here in New York with more than 30 years of history teaching documentary filmmaking and storytelling to young people. And it is such an extraordinary history. You'll learn more about that in my interview with Steve Goodman, EBC's executive director and founder, and alumni of the program, Serena Vaughn, who is an upcoming talent and uh, just such an incredible perspective on this work of media education. I hope that you enjoy this interview. It might be my favorite to date. Uh, I think the stories that Steve has to tell will knock your socks off. A reminder before we get going that this month I am running a raffle for a brand new Google Pixel phone. If you rate, review the podcast, and tweet it out with the hashtag NoSuchThingPodcast, we will draw your name from a hat at the end of the month. I do hope you win, I hope you participate, and will help me spread the word about the good work we're doing. Without further, check out Serena and Steve. So Steve, tell me, I'm, I'm really interested to hear more about your early life and work. And I know that you trained in journalism and I'm curious about the moment where in the early 80s, I guess, you decided to, um, you had some experience that helped you decide that the better purpose for your work was to found EVC and to do this. Um, but tell me how, in your mind, however far back <laughs> that story starts, I'm curious to hear that. Um, because I think here's why I think that, um, so I went to film school as a, a young person and thought for sure that I'm going to be, um, you know, making movies, writing, writing documentaries. And, um, th that was like absolutely what I wanted to do. And when I went into education and started working with young people on the stuff that I was really passionate about, I thought, um, I was a, I thought I was a total anomaly. Like, who goes to film school and then gets into education? The more I worked in education, the more I talked with people who went to art school and went to school to study um, the things that I had and found themselves in some environment where uh, they then uh, pursued it in a totally different way. I think the reason I want to know your story is because I think there are a lot of media educators out there who don't know enough about 
people who've sort of uh, been there and uh, what the inspiration was. Okay, well, um, how much time did you say we have? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, would, I have to go back to my um, college days uh, when um, I had been interested in going into journalism, and many in those years were inspired by Woodward and Bernstein in the 70s and the impact of their investigative journalism really causing Nixon to resign over Watergate and, and the power to really do good for our democracy. Mm -hmm. So that was always an inspiration for me. Um, so, But I was going to college and um, I was kind of like a history major. I didn't really know. I was liberal, liberal arts uh, kind of uh, interest. And uh, there was a meeting for a TV club. They were going to start a TV station at Columbia. That's where I was going. And I'm like, well, what the hell? I'll go to this meeting. And so we, I was a sophomore, and um, they kind of went around the room, I remember, and say, so what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And this, you know, we're starting this station. And I'm like, okay, I'll make a documentary. I had no idea anything about how to do it or how to use equipment or anything. So they said, okay, next week, you know, come back with an idea. And so during that week, I had read an article in the New York Times about um, an organization that was working with gang members. This is about, you know, in the 70s. And uh, to try and help them get jobs and get GEDs. A lot of them had uh, dropped out and were in these gangs. And um, so I said, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do something about gangs. Again, I had no clue how to do any of this. So it took me a while, and I found the guy who ran it, and I badgered him and everything. I finally interviewed him, you know, just like with a pen and paper, and he introduced me to these different gang members, and he said, okay, these guys I think would be good for you. So, you know, they'll want to be interviewed. So I met the Savage Riders uh, when they were down the block from the Savage Skulls and the Savage Nomads. This was in the Bronx in 1977, 78, something around then. Um, and I went and got, uh, this was now reel-to-reel black-and-white porta-packs was the kind of technology at the time. And I had a friend to, who went with me, and we met uh, Rotten Ralph and Crazy Cat and the different guys in this gang, and we went up to their, their house and uh, their gang clubhouse, they called it, and started interviewing them. And they would tell stories, and... I um, first I just I transcribed everything and and took a long time and gave them back what they said it's a book about us you know and I took pictures I gave them the everything and and kind of built a sense of trust and finally um, I was able to get what that time was called a youth grant and any uh, H youth grant they don't do it anymore but it was for people under thirty they get these grants so I got five thousand dollars which was huge and so by the time I graduated college I the summer I graduated I spent that summer uh, and I got two other friends to go into the Bronx and hang out with them and I was really inspired by the the verite filmmakers mm -hmm. of the day and um, wanted to try and be, you know, like the Maisel, Maisel Brothers and 
uh, Fred Weissman, and you know all of that. And um, so, Serena, do you, have have you had a schooling in verite yet? Yes. Yeah, that's part of some of what we do. Amazing. Right? Yeah. BBC. Yeah, that's like my favorite part. Yeah. <laughs> So um, I started doing this, and this was the summer before I went to journalism school. I got into journalism school, and I uh, was really struck by these kids. They were smart kids. They were, you know, 17, 18, 19-year-olds, but they were so marginalized. This is now when the city had defaulted almost. There were blocks and blocks of burned-out buildings, and um, they were stealing copper pipes, you mm-hmm. know, for and selling scrap metal and then people weren't were living squatting without water. It was a terrible situation. And I thought, um, you know, I'm documenting this and maybe I should be giving them a chance to to document their own situation. And particularly when what happened my first week when I, I thought I was editing, I'm still editing. Again, this is now with a grease pencil and a stopwatch and, mm-hmm. you know, editing this, this stuff. Um, we had, you know, does 100 hours of footage of these different gang, gang members' lives and what they were doing. One guy lived with his mother and he worked at the post office and the shotgun was the guy. That, so anyway, I read an article that the first week in, back in school there was a murder on that same block, in the same building, mm. with the same gang members. But I didn't know their real names. And so I started following that. I'm like, this film is not over. Now it's taken a totally different turn. So I was able to get the confession, taped confession. I got permission to go, and this was a different time, I got permission to go into Rikers Island. This guy shotgun who had really, he had saved my life from once from a gang member who thought I was an undercover cop. He was the one who confessed to co- committing these horrific murders. And I, so that became a big focus of the documentary, before and after with this kid's shotgun. And some of the other gang members were in it. And I felt it just, I was in the Upper West Side in an Ivy League school for part of my time. And the other part mm. of my time was with these kids in Rikers Island and what was going on and the struggles that they were in. in and, and I'm like, this, I, I, I need to start rethinking what I'm doing. And I ended up showing the film out on the streets. That in those days, you could take the, the bottom off of a street lamp and plug in to, to the electrical current nice. and have uh, people would have block parties that way. So we did it with um, a portable monitor <laughs> and a black and the black and white, you know, porta pack, and played it. And we had discussions like this was, this you're making this to make a difference. It wasn't just art; it was about social change. And so we we started having these conversations, and then I started showing it in schools. And I learned that there was this whole system of alternative schools, and people knew. Oh yeah, I know that my brother was in this gang, and I know those yeah. nomads, and I'm like, and I'm, that was when I was like, I have to, you know, really start thinking about putting the cameras in their hands, mm. and uh, so I started teaching at um, Satellite Academy, it was one of the early uh, alternative schools in Lower East Side, and the kids just took to it, and uh, you know, it was kids who were not who had not succeeded in the bigger traditional schools. They started making amazing films. 
and I was working with a place called Downtown Community TV Center, and I was really inspired by their sense of community media and the people that were part of that uh, at the time. And um, so I, I felt is, like... Is, that's DCTV. DCTV, And yeah. they're still around. Yeah. John Albert uh, and Keiko Tsuno are the, the co-directors. And, yeah, Karen Renucci was the one who said she, she helped start Democracy Now!, she said, go, you know, teach this class. Yeah, they have such <laughs> and, an incredible history, yeah. Yeah, so I um, I didn't take a day, of, sorry to say, of film school. I I worked, I was a sort of apprentice through John and the others there and helped make documentaries and his news shows that got on NBC, and I learned by doing. And then I started reading, like, John Dewey. Hey, you learn by doing. And mm-hmm. Paulo Freire and the you know importance of liberatory kind of education. And... So it made so it helped give me some theory to the practice, and um, so after a couple of years at Satellite, I got a little funding, and was um, you know still at DCTV in one corner without any <laughs> heat in the winters. We went, and then uh, got some money to start EVC, and we got like one person and a phone and a camera, and you know sort of built it from there. That's amazing. Uh, so I don't know if that answers Serena, your question. Serena is is listening to the story. Is this uh, the first time you've heard the whole story? Yeah, it's the first time I've heard it. Is it as cool to you as it is to me, or <laughs> yeah. am I like a total nerd? No, I'm just in awe. Well, and it reminds me of this documentary I watched, actually. I don't remember what it was called, but it was on Netflix. And it was about a photographer, and he would go into, like, like go and interact with the gangs and all that and and oh, like yeah. the same thing happened to him where they thought he was an undercover cop and the mm. other guy like saved his life yeah that's what it reminds me of. so i'm like picturing you as this guy <laughs> it, it reminds me of is similar uh there is a series on hip-hop and I, i'm gonna forget the name but i will put it in the show notes that is available on netflix but they did at least one maybe two episodes of this series uh, and it, maybe even the title of the episode was The Bronx is Burning. And it was absolutely that era. And I'm in my mind, I'm picturing you on the streets in this footage that I've seen. Uh, I, I had to, uh, I guess I can say this. Uh, they had us at one point being a lookout for the cops when they were taking, because that's what they, they did was they part of, they would steal the pipes. And they said, you know, the Fire department's doing it, you know, and so we're yeah. doing it too. This is how we make money. Meanwhile, uh, I love one of my favorite parts of the story you just told is that uh, is the names of the gang members, which feels very West Side Story to me. Like that there can be gang members named uh, <laughs> who, well, Crazy Cat, Crazy, yeah, <laughs> Dirty that old Crazy man. Cat is the toughest guy on the block. Uh, doesn't, yeah, doesn't. doesn't uh, seem that tough to me, but um, oh well, I didn't think so either until then. Right. I found out you learned better. Um, um, uh, but the thing that I I learned and it was really hard for me, and it's not a lesson about education that I want anybody to follow. But I spent so much time on this project and trying to get permission. I thought like my t- tapes would be subpoenaed. I was worried, you know, for, because of the trial and. Um, that I didn't finish a course in journalism school. Mm. I didn't finish the business reporting course. I finished the labor. <laughs> and I, fin- I was spending, and so my professor said, you're not going to graduate, you're going to fail. And I said, you know, can I make it up? He said, no, it's too late. 
It was a one-year program, and I finished my master's thesis, like a 120-page thing. So um, they said, take a leave. Take a leave. You have a choice. Take a leave now and finish your film or forget your film. You shouldn't have ever been doing it in the first place because it had nothing to do with college. Mm. Uh, and you can, you know, come back and finish your school. So I chose to, to leave and finish the film. Um, but it was like I felt, you know, school should be a place where people can do their projects that they have passion about. And this was not, this was totally outside of my assignment. They didn't really have much documentary. That, so, so that was also something that was hard, very hard for me that I, you know, I'm kind of a college dropout in a sense. I'm as, you know, right, I didn't right. get that degree, but I felt like a lot of other kids that may, you know, need to be inspired and have a passion about something and should be mentored and supported. So I'll stop it there. <laughs> I want to come back to that. So, uh, but before I do, um, Serena, tell us, I know a little bit about your story because I've seen your film, but um, people listening probably haven't, and I want to make sure they have some context for who you are, uh, not just as somebody who's done some programming at ABC, which um, is amazing and we'll talk about, but um, tell us uh, who you are and a little bit about your journey prior to finding EBC and the stuff you've been doing lately. Hmm. Before, I mean, I, f I found EBC like through my school, my current school that I'm in now. Uh, they they do internship programs, and I just told them that. They're like, oh, what are your interests? And I said, oh, I like making films. I like doing this and this. And they're like, oh, we have, like, a really good internship for that. Mm -hmm. But before that, I had no idea how. I knew I wanted to do something with filmmaking, but I had no idea how I was going to make connections in the city, especially since I didn't know anybody before I moved here. Right. So. Which was how long ago? A year. Okay. Yeah. So, so you moved here in your what year of high school would it have been? So when I, it's, it's kind of a, like you saw the film, in the film and in real life. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, um, I stopped going to school about halfway through my junior year. Okay. And then I didn't go to school for, I think, a year, mm -hmm. like a whole another year. Um, and then I came here and I resumed junior year, so... I guess it would have been senior year, technically, like what I should have been in. Okay. Yeah. Tell us, to the extent that that you're comfortable talking about it, what you were up to in the year that you were, before you came to New York. Oh, the story. <laughs> so, um, before New York, I was living in Florida, my hometown, West Palm Beach, and my parents had gotten divorced when I was in middle school. So junior year, they started to argue a lot. They started to fight a lot um, over custody of me and my siblings. Primarily me because I was one of the I was the youngest one, so it was just my time to mm -hmm. go back and forth. Um, and it got to the point where, well, how should I explain that? It was just, at one point, I didn't want to go to my mom's anymore, so I started staying with my dad, and I didn't tell her where I was. So she had no idea, and they're back and forth in the courts fighting, 
Um, and eventually she got custody of me again. And she told me that I was not allowed to go to school. So I had already left junior year, but then I wanted to go back into it. And I couldn't go back because she said, no, your dad is going to come and see you. You can't see your dad. Hmm. That's why. I see. So she was trying to protect you and school was a place where she couldn't. Right. Got it. Um, She told me I could do online school, but I've done online school in the past and it does not work for me. So, um, yeah, then one day when she was at work, I took off. I left. My friend came and picked me up, and then I went to New York City. And so you didn't, you didn't go without any support, right? You, you, got, you had a place to stay. Right. So my aunt got a new job in New York City, and she told me I could move with her because I, when I, um, I had been staying with her at one point, so I'd already lived with her before. So, um, yeah, she got a new job. She said I could come and stay with her, and my dad bought the plane ticket, and he messed it. And I didn't, at the time, I did not have phone service because it was under my mom's plan, and we didn't have the money to pay the phone bill. So um, my dad texted me through Snapchat. Look at your dad on Snapchat. Yeah, he texted me through Snapchat. He, like, sent me a screenshot of the boarding pass. He was like, this is the day, like, be ready. And um, another thing about my parents is... They don't like to share information about each other. They don't want anything to do with each other. So when he sent me that, he's I didn't tell him how I was going to do it. I didn't even tell him that I was doing it until probably like a day before. I was like, "Okay, like I'm I'm moving, like I'm I'm leaving." Mm. And then he said, "Oh, okay. Well, I don't, do you need me to come pick you up?" And I didn't want him to I didn't want my mom to know, you know. Right. Yeah. So You didn't want him to to be an accomplice. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. That was very smart of you at 17? Just turned... No, and no, 18. It was a 18. day... 18, okay. I left... My birthday is September 14th, and I left September 17th, like three mm-hmm. days after I turned 18. Because wow. otherwise there would have been, like... Right. Right. An issue with the law. Smart. On the run. <laughs> <laughs> so before all of that, and I don't want to talk too much about that part of the story because I want people to, to check out the film... Um, which at the end of the interview, uh, I want you to shout out the film and give us the title now. Family Portrait. Family Portrait. And I know it's on Vimeo, but uh, you can tell people also where they can find it, uh, and I'll make sure to link to it. So I don't want to spoil it for people because they should go and check it out. I thought it was super powerful. Um, Thank you. I do want to hear, were there parts of your life prior to that experience and that story where now when you're thinking about the stuff that you're doing and the film that you made uh where it all kind of clicks and it makes sense where you're like oh i've always been into x um is there that part of your story before you got to ebc so um growing up i was always taking photos taking i would always steal my dad's video camera (laughs) to take pictures it was anything and um uh, one day my dad said, you know, you're really good at taking pictures. Maybe that's something you want to do. And I was like, maybe it is. Because we would make skits, my brothers and sisters, and we'd record them. They're, they're hilarious. Do you I remember think any of them? Oh, let's see. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I can't remember any storylines. Oh, I remember one. We were going to do um, 
we never ended up finishing it, but we were trying to make like there was like this magic penny, mm. and if you find it, you can have like as many pennies as you want, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like unlimited funds. <laughs> but we never. I like that it was only okay. magic to the extent that you can have more pennies. Yeah, but like you can't turn it into a million dollars, dollars no, no, in no. cash. And we didn't have. Um, How old were you? I was probably like ten or eleven, but we didn't have. Uh, What's it? We didn't have a camera because my my dad's camera had gotten stolen at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, all those baby pictures are gone too. But oh, anyway, that's sad. yeah. But um, he it had gotten stolen, so we recorded it like with her webcam, like my sister's computer. Mm. We were like sh- we're like holding this <laughs> camera up mm-hmm. to get the different shots. But yeah, um, but yeah, and then um, in middle school, I actually took this or I joined this club it was kind of like a tv production club but I was my attendance in middle school was very poor Mm -hmm. so I didn't get much out of that I mean they had like a green screen they would do like the uh daily announcements for the school that's pretty cool yeah but I didn't you know I didn't get to do much with that because I was hardly ever there Mm -hmm. and then uh high school I went to um A.W. Dreyfus School of the Arts Mm -hmm. are you familiar Mm mm-hmm and I did I uh, did photography and like digital media filmmaking and that's when I um, really got it like back into it because I, I wasn't really paying attention to it during middle school but because you know that's when my parents got divorced that was yeah. all I was focused on um, but yeah then I got back into it we would do projects I took a an, another film class and we studied like old films like Alfred Hitchcock and all those like black and white you uh-huh. know film noir. Um, that was really interesting, and that's yeah, that's basically it. And then now this. So you had some schooling, like you you had some background. I had You'd background. Seen some of the some of the greats. Yeah, I had. I didn't have background in, um, like equipment use or how to make a film, but I had mm-hmm. background in like films themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So then, what brings you to EBC? How did that work? So when I went to my new school here in the city. Um, I, they just they at my school they really try to get to know you mm-hmm. like each student and they ask you what your interests are and then they told me that there's an internship available for uh, making a documentary and I said okay well I like to make films like I originally I wanted to make movies but I was like I just like working with cameras so why not mm-hmm. and then um, yeah and then I had the interview I thought that it was good cop bad cop situation <laughs> with Jesse and Gil I thought Gil was a bad cop oh, he was. <laughs> yeah. He was. Well, he he he'll say he's not, but he was. (laughs) He was asking the difficult questions, and I was nervous. This was your interview with EBC. Yeah. Got it. Um, But yeah, he would ask the difficult questions. But then and then, oh, I remember. To the I was late to the interview, ten minutes late because I thought the interview was taking place at my school, not Mm. at the EBC offices. So I was running through these streets, and I didn't know where it was at the time. and I remember at the end, they weren't mad, but at the end I said, okay, I won't be late again. And then on the first day of the program, I was late. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I was 10 minutes late. And so I walk into the uh, the room and the nice cop, Jesse, nice cop, or the nice, um, <laughs> one of the instructors, she was in there and I said, oh, hey, Jesse, you know, she has all her students. And I was happy because I thought I was, I thought there was one group. There are two groups per program. Um, so... I thought there was one group, and I said, oh, hey. And she's like, oh, let me take you to the library where Gil's group is. That's the group you're in. So I was <laughs> even more nervous. So suddenly uh, yeah. you were in the bad cops class. Right. 
but he turned out not to be a bad cop. <laughs> right. Yeah. So before before I ask um, Steve a question, do you want to shout out your school for young people who listen to this and are like, wow, that sounds cool and more like what I need? What's the name of your school? Um, it's Manhattan Comprehensive Night and Day High School. Cool. And it's for um, students age 17 to 21. Yep. It's mostly students who've like dropped out and want to get back on track. Yep. But I chose it because I didn't want to be placed. Uh, and they don't they do not do it based on grade level. They do it based on the credits you need, and that's why I chose the school. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're really helpful. Everybody look into that. Yeah. Yeah. Manhattan Comprehensive has a, a pretty cool reputation among, um, you know, there's, there's sort of like a – uh, category of school that uh, is working with students who are either recovering credits or or uh, a little bit later in the trajectory uh, of their schooling, and they have a pretty amazing reputation. Yeah. So, Steve, is it typical that every student who comes to EBC would have an interview? Yes, that's part of the the process. It's part interview and part orientation yeah so that the students get to learn more about the program and what to expect and for the instructors to also learn about them and are there times that you say no Um, there are times and it's also a limit like we really we try and cap it at about 12 or 13 per group uh, per, with one instructor, and we also try and get a college intern to help. Mm. So about 25 students per semester. And so we have, you know, people, it's both people who are on waiting lists, mm-hmm. you know, and if somebody can't, you know, stay, um, you know, when they come for the interview. And then sometimes it's just not the right semester, and they can come the next semester. Mm. You mentioned the waiting list, and I know that We've been in rooms together before where this issue of scale has come up, right? And we talk about oftentimes there's this obsession in the nonprofit world, certainly in the nonprofit education world, um, with scale. Um, and scale, in, in our case, usually means, you know, how many schools are you covering? How many states are you covering? EBC has um, had a huge impact but it's always it, it struck me that your philosophy seems like one where the most meaningful job that you can do is more about depth than a kind of scale that's um, sort of franchising EVC <laughs> as a as an organization and having uh, an outpost in every state. Can can you talk a bit about that? That's a, yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, we've always felt it's kind of like Serena said in her school that it's really important to get to know your students well and to create a sense of community. And so you, it's generally, you know, there was something called a small schools movement, and we really believed in that. And so I think having a small group of students that are part of the production team and learning together is is part of our philosophy. Mm. It's also, uh, we want to make sure, you know, technically they have time to get their hands on all the equipment, but also, again, it's to really, they they open up about, I mean, very personal issues in the project. And uh, so size, in that sense, keeping it small really is important. Um, But having said that, we do believe, you know, that we want to reach more kids than the 
12 or 13 in, you know, Serena's group or Gill's and Jesse's, you know, mm -hmm. um, because that would be about 60 a year in Doc Workshop. And it's very intensive. You're right. It's three hours, what is it, three hours a day, tw you know, 12 hours a week for a full semester. And that's, and that is way more than that because they actually spend, you know, they're, they're on weekends and holidays editing, mm -hmm. you know, at the end. Um, but we do have other programs that take that core model and try and reach many more kids. So there's something called pro um, professional development programs where we do um, workshops for teachers in developing their skills in schools to bring kind of community media into the classroom. Mm -hmm. So it's integrating it into the, into the curriculum, as I think you create curriculum so mm -hmm. uh, we coach them and work so that way you know we're in about 15 or more schools and then there's some after-school programs and middle school and um, then there's a um, court involved youth program so that way we do reach more kids mm -hmm. um, but it's less intensive and it may be um, you know once a week where a teacher will do that but we feel over time if we can work with a teacher and they have, say, they reach 100 kids, you know, through their classes in a year, and then you multiply that by how many years they do that, or if they work with other teachers in the school, it that's a way that we approach mm -hmm. scale. The other thing that we've been doing um, is I think you may be uh, familiar with with um, the Hive uh, project is New Media Arts, and that's looking at how it's another after-school program. It's not necessarily just video, but it's building websites, learning Photoshop, um, and remixing old EBC mm -hmm. films. Um, and so that way we scaled with, uh, we had it at EBC just alone where there'd be, you know, 15 or 20 kids. Um, and then we worked with the Parks and Rec program as a partner in the New York City Writing Project, exploring what does it look like when you do this approach, this methodology in so five locations, mm. um, and it's that's been interesting um, to see how does it not get adopted, but you know get adapted in those places. And then years ago, we got funding from Adobe um, to do like institutes, teacher institutes in London, in India, in other parts of cities mm. uh, around the United States, the Bay Area. Um, and we just realize, I mean, yes, you can scale it, and we still feel it's important to um, do it as long as you can keep that, the essence of the small group yeah. uh, there. Uh, but it just, it really requires a lot of care and feeding mm -hmm. and a lot of support. And it's not just, you know, here's a camera and here's a microphone and go out, you know, but there's a real... There's a methodology behind it, you know, a learner-centered approach and getting, you know, collaborative learning and project. You know, there's a lot of buzzwords for it, mm -hmm. but it's it's not easy to to do well. It takes time, and and you need a um, a community of practitioners to bounce ideas off and support each other. Yeah, it's one thing. One of the things I really admire about EBC is actually to this. Uh, your answer just now um, is that it's one thing to say your organization is built on these principles and these practices. It's a it's a totally different thing to 
do it and to own it. And this is something that's all over EVC, even uh, in the in the first scroll or so on the EVC website. There's these sort of four tenets oh, or, yeah. or principles that um, EVC's work is built on, and one of those is really um, connected to uh, youth development and some oh, of yeah. the sort of core principles of youth development, and one of those being the sort of safety, uh, you know, young people building um, a social sense of self and safety and a, and a comfort in their environment to be able to tell their stories. And um, yeah. it's one thing to say that. It's a totally different thing to um, you know talk to a funder who I'm sure along the way have come and uh, tried to encourage you to change the model so that you can reach more students. Yes. Um, and it's a very different thing to look at funders and say, no, like this is the right way to do this. Um, and you've done that. And I, I just, that's one of the things I really oh, admire about well, the organization. Um, I think one of the things that's been interesting, um, and speaking of funders, you know, that Hannah Sun, you know, at Mozilla has been a great partner. Um, where she and I talked about, like, how does this, you know, this look at EVC in New York, and what would it look like if you tried to do a partnership, you know, in another area? And we talked about Appalachia. Mm. This is this project. I don't know if you, it's okay to Happening in Tennessee, talk, yeah, yeah, go ahead. About that. But, I mean, it was really kind of after the <laughs> election in November, and there was a meetup, and we talked about, you know, this huge divide in our country. Um, an urban-rural divide and how people don't understand each other and there isn't much good communication and the need for that. And I mentioned how really when we first started EVC in 1985, the first summer, I think, we had um, a a video camp. I connected with this woman doing kind of community organizing work and Eastern Tennessee, mm. and so we had three years of these wonderful, really amazing uh, summer video camps where New York City kids went to this part in Appalachia and um, coal country uh, and worked with kids from Kentucky, uh, Virginia, and Tennessee, and mm. they lived in cabins, and they made these documentaries, um, and so we talked about, like, rekindling that and what might that look like, and there's this urban-rural divide, but there's also a digital divide in terms of access, you know, broadband access. Yeah. I know I'm sure you know about that. And what is the similarity in a rural area? Um, in, in this is um, Campbell County. It's like really on the border of Kentucky and Tennessee, yep. uh, where I think only uh, 6% have, have uh, in this county have uh, access to fiber optic uh, connection. And then we talk about in New York City, it's not geographic because of mountains or anything, but it's the affordability mm-hmm. and how it's, um, I think it's about a third of people or maybe more than a third in the Bronx can't afford it and don't have um, access uh, to the internet. And so that's another thing that they're looking at. It's what are the commonality, the differences in commonalities. And they find really, I mean, we were talking about this before, there's really much more in common that the yeah. young people have. I think there's a, a bit of a myth, a policy myth now that um, the digital divide is no longer a thing, that we kind oh, of solve that no. problem. And uh, exactly to the what, what you're describing uh, is that it's still an issue. It's a major issue. And um, as you know, and the 
the kinds of challenges that Mouse was founded on as an organization are still very much mm. in existence today, even though uh, a lot of the schools that we started working in may have broadband sort of backing up into the school. It doesn't mean that uh, the devices are updated. It doesn't mean that right. the piping inside the school is updated. It doesn't mean that right. there's actually access. And then beyond schools, um, when you start to talk about neighborhoods and what young people have access to at home, it's a it's a totally different thing. So this is more a plug than anything for yeah. uh, the digital divide and however we want to call it today. It's still an issue. Yeah. Um, it hasn't gone away. We haven't solved it, uh, despite the efforts of um, some incredible people, many of whom yeah. have been involved with Mouse over the years and still on our board um, through the Federal Department of Education and, and elsewhere. But this is an issue that the cities, cities nationally are still very much at work on. I want to explain something you mentioned. Um, so you talked about Hana from The Hive. And uh, the Hive, it's important to mention, is um, a network of organizations in New York and a few other cities where um, it's, it's sort of a, a hub for uh, informal educators and informal education organizations um, that uh, does a bunch of different things, uh, not least of which is to network the organizations and try to figure out how um, to best support young people who are, are kind of traversing that landscape from one organization to the next. Um, they also do some funding and other things. I would encourage people to go check out uh, yes. HiveNYC, I believe is also their URL, dot, dot .org. Um, and you, you mentioned Mozilla, and the reason for that is that um, the one of the major philanthropic efforts of the Mozilla Foundation is – uh, hive learning and um, so but yeah, before thanks. you go and uh, start writing emails to the Mozilla Foundation <laughs> as a grant making organization that's not what they do uh, they manage uh, they tend to sort of uh, bring resources together that they distribute through places like uh, hive learning networks and and other projects of theirs uh, in addition to the amazing work that they're doing at a policy level on um, uh, in in Washington D.C., I want to come back to something you said earlier. So um, I have this interview with you from 1993. What? <laughs> right. Oh and no. There's this. Per so Kathleen Tyner did this interview, oh. and it, there's nothing embarrassing. Um, it's a great interview, and you should. Google it, um, because you talk about a lot of these principles. Oh, I um, the reason that I bring it up is because uh, you're very consistent with your your inspirations, oh. one of them being Dewey, right? Oh, you, yeah. You talked about John Dewey earlier. Um, and Dewey is was writing some amazing things about education um, that were of his time, but many today would say before, you know, he was ahead of his time. Um one of the great quotes um, from Dewey that I love is about education not being ex being an experience of life, uh, but being life itself. And um, I love that because exactly what you just described in your earlier mm. experience at Columbia mm. uh, <laughs> speaks exactly to that. The other thing that Dewey says, and this is a question for you, Serena, is that um, 
we don't learn from experience. Uh, we learn by reflecting on experience. And my question for you, as I'm as I was watching your film earlier, and I was also thinking about Steve's experience doing this amazing project in the '70s, is how do you two think? In addition to film and video being a medium where reflecting on experience is very much a part of the process, how do you think um, doing it inside the frame of a camera uh, changes it even more? And uh, what have you gotten from that through this experience of of producing this film that I just watched? (laughs) It does change you. It does, like, allow you to reflect. I don't know. I don't know. Let me think. I mean, essentially, that is, like, filmmaking itself, reflecting and editing. And it just makes me think about whatever the topic is. So in my case, our, our film, it just makes you think about it over and over and over again until you have to do something to change it. Mm. You have no other choice. Mm. That's pretty incredible. I um, I don't know if I've ever thought about it that way. That's how it... Wait, why is it over and over again? You mean through the editing process? Through the you're, editing. You're watching the, it over and over? Through the filming, the interviews. Is there something you've done since your project that you feel like just inevitably changed the course of things? I think just the current project we're doing now, the the we are all connected. Yeah, talk about that for a minute. And I, we we were on the subway ride over. <laughs> she was mentioning about how it was different because nobody was really checking out their phones mm. because they had no service in mm-hmm. any of that area in and it, in Appalachia. When mm-hmm. she was in the camp, I don't know. I'm sorry. That was just one different way of. Yeah. Interacting. But anyway, I'm sorry. Well, um, was it last Wednesday? Last Wednesday, we um, are here. Did you, should I explain? Yeah, why don't you say a little bit more about what it is? Okay, so um, this is kind of a revamp of what Steve did in the 80s, right? Yeah. Well, but 21st century. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's, again, about connecting that urban-rural divide Mm -hmm. and trying to connect the two communities, see the similarities and differences between them. So uh, what month was it? August? No. August? July. July? Yeah. July, we took a trip to Tennessee, four students from New York, um, to go and interact with four students from Tennessee and try and connect connect them to each other. Mm. Um, And... We, I didn't expect to have that much in common with them, you know. Nobody did. Everybody had their stereotypes. Even they said they did not expect to have anything in common with us, but sure. it turned out it was that way. Um, so we all stayed in like it a... It was which way? <laughs> that you had things in yeah, common? Yeah, that we did. <laughs> in, in, in one day, right? Right, when... right. It was like immediate. Like we were all really, really good friends. Um, but... We all stayed in a cabin, and where we were staying, there was absolutely no service, no Wi-Fi. And I'm—I've been to places like that before. I've like dealt with that, um, but 
the other students from New York had never really like been without access like it. Yeah. I guess at least not for years. Right. So they were freaking out. And the other students, the Tennessee students were used to it, but that's like it forces you to talk. You know what I mean? You can't mm-hmm. hide on your phone. Yeah. You can't hide like behind a screen yeah. when you're forced to talk and interact and meet new people, socialize. Yeah. So but, what were some of the things you had in common with the students from Tennessee? Um, we all, well, obviously we all had an interest in filmmaking. Right. Uh, and we all, we all wanted to make a change in our communities. Um, what else? We could all just relate to everyday issues. Just basic things, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, our ways of life were pretty similar, you know. Despite being from totally different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about you, Steve? On the reflection question, does a camera change the degree to which reflection is uh, sort of the, the tool that enables learning? Um, I have to, along with... Um, Dewey insert a little frary and yeah. well they're both they both talk a lot about dialogue mm-hmm. and so I think when one of the first thing uh, practice projects the students always do is take the camera out at least in New York City and do street interviews so mm-hmm. the camera um, in somebody's face uh, and and a microphone asking questions right so Vo- Vox Populi yes. which I noticed incorporated into your yeah. film, by the way. So it's turning a street corner, you know, into a little town hall yep. debating some issue. So they're reflecting on that issue just by uh, asking certain questions that they may not have thought about and mm-hmm. having. So then when the students come back um, and look at it, they reflect bringing other voices from the community into the classroom mm. through media and they start reflecting back as they're logging it and deci- making decisions and talking about what they want to use and what they don't want to use. Um, and then I think they reflect again when they create a new order to it and mm-hmm. edit something together and watch that those voices that that they have now constructed in, in a new way um, and there are new audiences for that. So there's multiple layers of reflection that, that happen. Uh, but I think, again, it, it doesn't happen by magic. I just want to say that the role of the teacher, and Dewey will talk about that, and mm-hmm. Frary and others, is really critical in, in making sure that reflection happens along the way. They keep journals. They do portfolios. There's lots of discussion. The, the walls are full of posters where... Um, you know, they will not jot down notes. And I know we, it's not that we're anti, you know, new technology, mm-hmm. but that it having it um, on the wall, it, re- it remains public mm. and a reminder, again, of that the space is um, a medium. The walls are a medium for mm. reflection. So, yes, that's a key thing. I remember being a film student, and in the first year we had, we had to take this class called A&A, which was... Uh, aesthetics and analysis and it was like uh, I'm I'm signaling nodding off because because <laughs> it was probably the most important class we could take um, at the same time we had to watch 
some uh, some fairly hardcore like uh, Russian cinema <laughs> and like you had to get deep. In a moment where I came to, uh, in the middle of the Ziga Vertov's Man with a Movie Camera. Oh, I love that. Have you guys seen this? No. Well, you should yeah. add it. Add it to your list. Yes. It's yes. not like a get together with friends kind of movie, but um, <laughs> Ziga Vertov's Man with a Movie Camera, and there, there's this, there are these moments in Man with a Movie Camera. It, it, you could arguably say that it's really the kind of the first verite. There was. Um, He does some handheld work, which in 1929 was kind of like a crazy thing. But there are these shots that he takes in uh, the reflection of windows and and other things where you can actually see the camera and you can see him within the lens of the camera. And I remember sort of coming to in this fog of whatever. I was like a a 19-year-old college student um, and thinking, holy crap, like – it's him behind the camera having these so it's almost like the experience itself is the reflection um that i'm mm. having right now and i just remember it blowing my mind and me having this moment of like oh my god this is so important and amazing and it made me want to be behind cameras like forever i was just like this is just an incredible thing but he, but he captures like everyday life you know in in, in moscow is it or in uh, or st no. petersburg um, um, i think it was st petersburg that's know? so cool so i have to look into that because yeah. that's what i like to film and he's like this big tripod yeah it you know? is incredible yeah. and if you like some of uh today's great filmmaking videographers folks who are especially like some of the the good art that's happening in the vlogging world. Um, Dzika Veritov was like the popular, most popular vlogger of uh, <laughs> 1929 yeah. in, in uh, Leningrad or wherever he was. I will, I will yeah. put an appropriate link in the yes. show notes to uh, where he was and, and to the film. Man. So, Steve, th- this actually helps me transition to a question okay. um, which is that you've the the sort of founding of ABC was in 1984, and you said a minute ago, you know, not that we're anti-technology, and <laughs> EBC, you you can't do this work and be anti-technology. So EBC is a- absolutely was doing technology before a lot of the technology education organizations were doing technology. Um, a lot has changed since 1984, and I'm curious to hear um, not just about uh, you know, going from the the porta pack to uh, where we are now, um, so that's part of it. But um, what do you think the most important changes have been since 1984 in this work specifically, in working with young people and having them tell stories with this medium? Uh, what are the big changes? Um, Okay, so we still have a couple of the cameras that we used to use in in the 80s and pictures of the kids with cameras. And I think the students, you know, like to sometimes pick them up because, you know, they're this, you know, big and they're really... You don't don't still have your mustache from those pictures. (laughs) (laughs) Which is my favorite. Uh, Sorry. 
<laughs> there is, yes. The, uh... Serpico look. I went through different <laughs> kinds of things. Anyway, um, so <laughs> Starsky and Hutch. Uh, anyway, there was <laughs> the the weight of the camera, the size of the camera, the, the fact that it was separated into a deck, you know, a separate recording deck. All of that um, was... You know, certainly those are huge changes. I I held on to, and I know that I was criticized for this, I held on to the, some of those old cameras and decks uh, past when others were, you know, when it had been one single mm. uh, unit because I liked that students were forced to be together and communicate because uh, they had a microphone, a deck, yeah. a camera, and they were, and they would sometimes get tangled up with the camera, you know, all of that, and that they had to learn how to be, to collaborate and be a team. But mm -hmm. anyway, so that's, uh, and then of course now they're, you, everybody has a camera and their phone. Um, I think the other biggest uh, change for me is editing, you know, that when it became digital editing. Um, because we started, you know, we didn't really have, by the time we started EVC, it we weren't using reel-to-reel, -reel, you know, black and white anymore. It yeah. was three-quarter inch, U-matic. And um, so that is, everything was linear, and if you made a mistake, you had to go back and start from the beginning. And so the idea of, of digital editing was a huge change, and I, I loved that idea because... Um, not only, you know, it enabled uh, things to be quicker and, you know, be done that way, but that you could have multiple uh, versions of things and multiple perspectives on a particular story. And mm. you could have students, and it was just so much easier to do that. The downside is that you can um, get, you know, so people at the earlier days were, you know, here's this really cool effect that you can do. And they had something called the toaster. I, remember, I don't know if you knew any mm -hmm. of these things. Um, but, or the font size or the color or we can do a wipe and we can do, you know, so right. that, but what about the issue of homelessness or, you know, whatever the content was and the form started overtaking, you know, that right. that was a sort of a, a, a tricky piece when you're looking at, um, you know, digital editing and the advances. Yeah. But it's amazing, you know, now, uh, I mean. <laughs> so what that actually is a, is a, um, this is my next question. Oh, wait, 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 before, yeah. hold that thought. One last thing I have yeah. to say is that it, um, the analogy between the media uh, authoring process and the print writing process, uh -huh. I always thought there was, um, you know, close analogy. And if students learn to be really good editors, and telling stories that way, they can be better writers and editors with printed word. Yeah. Uh, so I thought this was like um, in computer word processing, there was an analogy so that you can, uh, so that was yeah. just the other analogy yeah. I wanted to say. Okay, go ahead. I, well, I, so my next question was gonna be, is there anything you miss? So in, in the sense that, were there things that were, I, I think people would make the, uh, would just presume that with all of the advances, um, this is just an easier easier job to do now, right? Because editing's easier, the equipment's lighter, it's more accessible. Um, is there anything anything you miss that's well, like, you know what? In 1990, this was way easier. Um, okay, so I, two ways I would answer that. One is that um, people would say, is there's really no reason for an EVC or you know maybe like a mouse or other youth media organizations. People, it's so easy to do. You can just go on YouTube now. Yeah. Everybody, it's do it yourself. 
And I think, you know, there's a real difference between just looking through a camera and really seeing and that that process of education. So just because the technology is easier and we have the Internet doesn't in any way, I think, do away with the importance of communities of practitioners and and media education Uh, and critical thinking. You just because you know, you can Google something doesn't mean that you're thinking more critically mm. or being a better storyteller or all of that or have a sense of empathy or ethical understand. You know, any of those things, um, the technology is is not solving those problems. Um, and would, you, would you agree with that, Serena? Yeah, I would say uh, in terms of, like, speed, efficiency, and maybe precision, yeah. technology has improved it, but, like, creative design and just, like... Uh, really addressing the issue is still up to the creator, like the producer, because mm-hmm. that's not something you can uh, recreate through technology. Yeah, but to the put to the teacher out there or the parent who's like, my kid doesn't need EBC because you know, like we have iMovie and I bought him a two thousand dollar camera. Um, what do you say to that teacher or parent? I say no. <laughs> I say put them in EBC or put them in a program like Mouse because it half of the things that I learned I would never have known. I would still be trying to create my own films, but now I have um, so much more knowledge and like so much more capability to express what mm. I want to. There's um, something that uh, well, I, I think James G and others mm-hmm. uh, you know talk about distributed knowledge, and I think. Serena had so much to teach others in the group, but also to learn from others. And being in a collaborative environment like that, where there is that sense of trust and and depth of and, and rigor, and you know they're doing it day in and day out for a whole semester. Uh, it's it's pretty intense. That um, is not. I don't think you can't learn that from a YouTube video or an iMovie video. Mm. So Jim G, who you mentioned, is a is a oh, very yeah. well known researcher who used to be at University of Wisconsin at Madison. I think now he's at University of Arizona. Uh, he has written some of the sort of seminal works in um, in games and learning, uh, and kind of came about at a time when socio linguistics before that. Yes, yeah. for sure. Um, but the the sort of distributed cognition, the way that you're yeah. talking about it, is yeah. such a big idea. And uh, one for those educators listening who are, um, you know, deep into sociocultural learning theory right now, uh, we can. I'll put some links <laughs> in the show notes to to distributed cognition uh, readings in case uh, you need need something good for. Uh, for but, the nightstand. <laughs> <laughs> but I think a good classroom, you know, makes that happen yeah. all the time, and they're learning and teaching each other. Uh, so. How many young people do you know have come through EBC to date? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't have an answer. Uh, so if it's it's been about 33 years, and... So time, I don't know, you want to do the math, times 60 times, but uh, then more recently, you know, with the other programs, yeah. there's been like a thousand a year. And those so thousands um, of students. Yeah, that's, that's and if a good you, way. if you add the PD that you're doing as oh, well, yeah. Yeah. so students who are being impacted by educators. 
I have to, yes. Can I just say one thing about the PD? I um, hope you will, yeah. Um, we, this last semester, um, we're, we ha we've been digitizing, speaking of, you know, technology, all the old formats, because mm. we've, we've saved these documentaries over the years from, you know, VHS and Betamax and Umatic, all you listeners, you can check out what these formats <laughs> right. are. And Betacam and, you know, Super 8, all this thing. Um, so we have this great archive. And um, we want to, you know, use that because it's, it's looking at New York City life from a youth perspective, from a community youth perspective, and, and a sense of history that is really vital, I think. So... One of the things we did was um, that students did a documentary about police brutality um, in 2015, mm. um, and it's called um, Policing the Times. And in it, they used uh, some footage from 1992, and people are out on the, you know, the streets, and there had been you know, murders of, of young black men back then, and they're in, in Harlem uh, marching. And um, so... There was a sense of history in that film. We showed it, and um, the kids who were in it felt like the people, the students didn't feel making, showing this video would make a difference because knowing your rights might just make, a, if you told the police officer, I know my rights, it might make them more angry. Mm. So we worked with the Department of Education, Office of Post-Secondary Readiness, because we work with a lot of transfer schools. Um, to do a project with teachers and principals to incorporate, you asked about scale up. Yeah. To use this film and have them look at issues of police brutality. We just did it this last semester um, and finished it, and we're working on sort of codifying some of the lesson plans. But one of the things is when I ba went back and interviewed the teachers and the principals who did it, they almost all said this was a highlight of their career, the teachers and the principals because it, they said it wasn't about a test. It wasn't about a standard. Mm. It was about urgent issues in the students' lives and all of our lives in the community and making change and, and having the students have a sense of agency around that. And it meant the teachers had a sense of agency. So when they met a student, I'll tell one a couple of quick examples. One was they did an interview with the borough president, Brooklyn borough president, Eric Adams, who used to be a police officer. Mm. And the, the teacher helped the student get this interview and couldn't have been prouder to meet this person who she had always looked up to and the students looked wow. and it was like it was and then when the principal saw it and he said this is what I want to do I want my school to be this is innovation diploma plus I want my school to be a project based learning school I want that you know and and it was shown on cable access and mm. so anyway it's also transformative for the teachers and the principals I just wanted to say that it's incredible I was listening to this interview with Ken Burns, who just released this uh, Vietnam series. Mm -hmm. um, and I was listening to an interview this morning on my run. Um, and he was talking about something that doesn't get talked about in documentary that often, which is the sort of intersectionality of doing a project like that. Like that, that film took 10 years. This project took 10 years to put together. And he's talking about what he what I mean by intersectionality is in this context is he's talking about 
it being the right time for a story, um, not just the right time for the filmmaker to tell the story, but the right time for the story to then be relevant at a time in history when people need to hear it and when we're going to learn the most from it. And um, it was really interesting Hmm. uh, to hear. But I was in prepping for this conversation. One of the neat things that came to mind for me was that um, one of the amazing things about what happens at EBC is that you guys motivate young people to tell their own stories. And that's one area where... Um, it's never it's never irrelevant, right? Like there there doesn't need to be a time in history when you go back and tell this amazing story about you, you know, going from uh, your 18th year to your 19th year and all of this stuff that happened in your life. Um, it's like it, it's always relevant and it's always powerful. And um, I just love that about uh, mm. the the framing of how it gets done. Um, what do you hope thousands of young people who have come through EVC, um, regardless, we know that there are some who go on to be filmmakers or producers or uh, work in, in the in the biz, as it were, uh, <laughs> and others who don't. There are likely um, lots and lots who are out there as uh, you know doing doing the work that people do. What do you hope? Um, over these 30 plus years <laughs> is the one most important thing that young people walk away from EBC with. Oh, one, that's, that's too hard. Um, I, I, I'm gonna have to say, I mean, I think s- seeing, uh, you know the world in with with fresh eyes is is something. Uh, but I ha- I can't hold I can't hold myself to one thing. I would say that is really critical. Being a critical thinker, a critical um, well, okay. I will I'll say critical citizen. I'll I'll blend those together. Yeah. So that they can be critically minded in the media they consume, and that they see themselves as citizens who have an active role in our democracy. I think uh, so they don't have to be filmmakers. They still know that their story is important to tell um, and whether it's been marginalized or silenced in one way or another, um, but that they also have um, a role in their community and and they're citizens of their community and citizens of the world. So Serena, what do you think is the most significant thing that you've taken from your experience at EVC? Do I have to choose one? <laughs> the most. Give her a couple. <laughs> you can say more than one thing, but uh, yeah, that's what happened with me. I, sort of I can't choose one. <laughs> I gained so okay, much. What are your What are your top three? Oh, God! There's so much that I learned. I gained like social skills. I gained interview skills. I gained. Um, just like equipment skills, how to edit, how to use the camera, how to use um, the microphones, everything. Wow. Sorry, I'm, I'm having flashbacks. At the end of this experience, I cried the last day. Tell me I was why in, you cried. Because I just, I felt so proud of myself and I felt so proud of the whole group, what we had done. 
Everything we'd learned how far we had come from where we started. Is it the hardest you've ever worked on a thing? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Was that in the portfolios that you're referring to? No, no, no. I almost cried in the portfolios, but I held it in. The last day of the program. Oh. Yeah. And uh, we went around the room and said what it meant to all of us. And then when it got to me, I couldn't even speak. It was just like mm. the tears were falling. And Gil almost cried, but he didn't cry. He had tears in his Gil, eyes. Gil was bad Gil's, cop. Yeah, Gil was bad cop, my instructor. Yeah. Yeah. Feliciano. It's always the bad cop who yeah. cries first. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. I guess, I think what Steve said, just being more active in the community. So one day, let's imagine 10 years from now, you decide storytelling is not what you want to do, and you become a brain surgeon. (laughs) I'll make sure I film the procedure. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Don't don't send it to me, because I will will have a horrible... (laughs) Woozy fainting experience. Oh God! Um, let so your brain surgeon in ten years. What do you think is the one thing <laughs> that you took from that experience that, regardless of what you end up doing, is going to be the thing that's most important? While I'm performing surgery, uh, or just anything in your life, applying to anything. I don't know how to explain it. Like, I can feel it, but I'm trying to think of the words to explain it. So you can, in in this room, you can sense this, an amazing emotion for you about what's come out of this experience. And this is why it's so hard for organizations like EVC to tell the amazing story about what the impact is, right? Because... This is a really hard question to answer, but I can tell, and from the, the quiet in this room and the sort of tip of your tongue-ness of this moment um, where Steve and I, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I can feel the impact that it's had on you. Um, and I think it's, you know, I'm satisfied with what I've heard so far. <laughs> But uh, but go ahead. You were about to say something. No, I wasn't. <laughs> well, she uh, c- can I say? Um, I mean, the other program in Tennessee was very intense. Was very intensive, and uh, they spent one week living and working together. And it was about they. She didn't mention, but they chose the common issue between the Tennessee students and the New York students was opioid addiction. Mm. And this was ground zero in this county in eastern Tennessee for it. And the second day of the project, there was a break-in, and all the computers were stolen by addicts that lived down the road. And I was talking about this on the way over with Serena and how, you know, really what a blow to everybody, but the students felt it's more important. They documented the police coming in and looking at the damage. They still had cameras. And they felt it was more important than ever to tell this story they didn't give up, and what I want—I wasn't there that day, but what I heard from the instructors was how Serena was this calm, this this steady hand in that to, in uh, in the group and and for that week 
reliable, responsible, steady hand um, as in a very you know tough, tough. Uh, project um, and it's we're just beginning it really it's mm. going to continue through the semester but I, I don't know I just know that they did they gave me a nickname what at was the it? well when Steve I guess did this project in the 80s at the end they had like an award type ceremony where they uh, gave <laughs> we had a video of, the group. of <laughs> yeah go ahead you can explain that part huh explain, like, explain. like superlatives oh we had a video uh that i showed them from you know yeah me with a beard in 1986 or whatever they had a good laugh um and uh and so everybody got uh a, an award for you were the best uh, direction when you know when we got lost and you were the co-pilot in the car right, right? so right. i wasn't there when they got so, so what was your uh they did the same thing and i they they mine was the rock they were like, you hold it down. That is so the rock. Sweet. Yeah, it was really nice. That you hold it, that you hold it down. Not that you have like giant tribal tattoos. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> and are a former not Dwayne. WWE not Dwayne wrestler. Rock. That is extremely sweet and must have been a moment for you. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I love it. Everybody was like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> before before we wrap up, I feel like we could have. I could sit here and geek out with the two of you guys about <laughs> all kinds of things um, but but uh, Serena before we do tell us where to find your film right now? I'm oh, sorry I thought you were going to yeah. say something else no. um, you can find Family Portrait on Vimeo um, on if, the... you, if you search Serena Vaughn um, I will link to it in the show notes yeah. but yeah. if you search Serena Vaughn and Vimeo with the title Family Portrait, it will come up in the first five or six search results. We can give you the link. Yeah. It yeah. should. Is it on the, the website it's, as yeah. well, the EVC website? Great. Well, yeah, yeah, we'll give you the link. And Steve, how should people stay connected with EVC? I know evc.org is the website. Mm-hmm. Is there uh, social if, media or other uh, places that we can stay connected with what's happening? Yes, yeah, I can give you all of that as well. So evc.org is the yeah is our website. Okay, great. And if they want to contact me, should I give them my email? Sure. <laughs> S. Goodman at evc.org. If you have other questions or you want to ever come by and visit, see Serena and all the other great students we have, um, and um, we you know love to have more people come by. Amazing. Um, I will wrap up by saying how uh, how much I admire EBC. I think I've 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 gushed a little bit in this conversation, but I, I uh, just admire the work that you guys are doing. When I was um, eleven or twelve, um, I would I had the good fortune of having older siblings who uh, mostly beat me up, but <laughs> mm-hmm. occasionally uh, just were looking out for me. And I had an older sibling who. Uh, gave me my first journal, and it was a moment that was so important to me because he sort of he opened his journal and he showed me that you can do different things. You can write about your experiences, you can draw, you can you know doodle what's in front of you. Uh, but it was this moment that was really important to me, and it was uh, it had this significance because I think it was the first time in my life where um, I felt like my story was important and that me as an observer that it was important that I 
told it and that I kept it. And I feel like in a huge way, EBC mm. is uh, big brother in this analogy to so many young people. And um, it, it's such an important organization, not just here in New York, but as mm. an example um, mm. nationally. And so I know you guys are busy. Mm. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. Um, doing this and Serena I cannot wait whatever you do uh, in the years to come to see what it is uh, regardless uh, I hope you make more films um, but whatever it is I'm going to stay mm. connected through Steve and, and hear what uh, what's the latest thank you for doing this thank you thank you for having thank me thank you Mark this was a real pleasure great yeah, this was a great conversation This podcast was produced with not nearly enough support. To find out more about sponsorship or funding No Such Thing, hit me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser or find my contact info at nosuchthingpodcast.wordpress. No Such Thing is made possible through partnership with CUNY SPS and their Masters in Youth Studies. Find out more at sps.cuny.edu. And Mouse. Find us on the web at mouse.org. Beats for this show are produced by Leroy Tindy, a young man who I took to the hole when they called him black guys. You can find more on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. The podcast is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you. Show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.wordpress.com.